KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan, and this is Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a minute. Radio Orbit, KOPN. Hi, everybody. It's Mike. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. That was music from Ben Boatwright. More from Ben in a bit. But let's get things going here right away. Thanks to Debbie. First off, Free Range Radio Theater. Great stuff, as always, doing Charles Dickens tonight. And I think she's going to finish that up next week. A Christmas Carol. And uh, The Grinch, as a matter of fact, next week as well. So tune in. Every Monday at 10 p.m., an hour before this program for Free Range Radio Theater. Great stuff from Debbie Johnson. All right, Kelvin and Jason doing it up before that. Jazz plus blues equals cold and wet. Tech Radio, great as always. Jeff Wheeler getting things going with Uncommon Light, 3 to 5 p.m. every Monday. Great stuff on KOPN. Great to be a part of it. All right, thanks to everybody who participated last week in the program. Thanks to my wonderful guest, Professor Lewis Greenberg. Remarkable. 
first-hand information from a friend and a co-researcher and a peer of the amazing Dr. Emmanuel Velikovsky. Catastrophism, the way the world actually works. Take a look at your life. <laughs> if you missed it, it's on the web, www.mikehagan.com. Check out the program archives. We also heard the cool tunes last week and the beautiful voice of Shannon Diaz and her band, Sherelle C. Limes and the Lemons. Another great young talent right here in Columbia. Again, check it out in the archives, okay? All right, uh, tonight, we've been doing this a lot of late. But uh, like last week and the week before, we'll have a little different plan than normal tonight. Rather than wait till the midnight hour, we'll start the show right off with our guest, former Nebraska State Senator John DeCamp. We'll also be mixing in some music from Ben Boatwright. We started things off with a song called All This Time. Nice additional vocals there by Katie Richard, as a matter of fact. And uh, anyway, it's a new CD called It's Okay, Just Pretend from Ben Boatwright. We'll hear a little bit more of that along the way tonight, okay? But uh, right now we're going to jump right in and uh, welcome our very special guest. All right, he was a state senator in Nebraska for 16 years. He was once described by the Omaha World Herald as the most prominent politician in that state. He's a Vietnam veteran. He's an attorney who fights for children. He's a man who wrote one of the most astonishing and important books that I've ever read, and a guy who has a tremendous amount of courage. The book is called The Franklin Cover-Up, and the name of the author is John DeCamp, former Senator John DeCamp. On behalf of myself and a whole lot of my listeners, welcome to Radio Orbit. It's an honor to have you on the program. Thanks. Thank you, good sir. It's an honor to be here. Well, I've never been here before, so I think so anyway. Well, we'll find out if it was or not. But uh, <laughs> anyway, hey, look, for, uh, for the listeners who aren't familiar with you, uh, what I'd like to do first off is ask you for a little bit of background information on yourself uh, so folks can get a little bit of uh, a feel for where you came from, how you got on this path. Maybe start with Vietnam, and then uh, we can get into the Franklin Horror story uh, in a little while here. But please... Uh, Maybe just start off with a little bit about who uh, who John DeCamp is. Uh, you said start with Vietnam. I suppose we can do that. Uh, I was one of those uh, country kids from Nebraska here, graduated from law school in Nebraska, was ready to get active in the practice of law. And just about the time I kind of got going and got everything set up, my uncle, Uncle Sammy, you know. The same mm, sure, sure. Yeah, I remember. Sammy sends me this polite little letter, and he says, Hey, John. Come on down, we want you to join us for a little program we got going. And I said, well, I'm real not anxious to do that, but uh, anyway, so I reported and uh, hoped I'd be disqualified or show, thrown out, but no, they decided I was just as healthy as anybody, and uh, hmm. so they uh, decided to uh, put me in the Army. Then this guy, Richard Nixon, he was running for president, if you remember. I remember him, too, yeah. Golly, you just elect me, you don't have to worry anymore. I'll put this thing over. But the only way, if you were in the Army, the only way you could kind of stall a little, if you were at least slightly honest about it, the only way you could stall uh, was if you were in special schools. And these schools included uh, officer school, Vietnamese language, jungle, airborne, ranger, and I think that was it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I thought, well, heck, well, Richard says he'll have this war over. All I have to do is stall a little. So I volunteered for officer school, and then uh, the war wasn't over. It was a little hotter. And uh, 
then Jungle School, then Airborne, then Ranger, then uh, Vietnamese Language. That was the last one. And by the time I finished all those, instead of the war being over, it was at its peak. The <laughs> offensive had occurred and on and on. So they sent my young body to Vietnam, sure enough, and I was assigned and reported immediately the moment I arrived to a man named William E. Colby, who was officially the deputy ambassador there, but in fact he was... Uh, uh, head of the CIA over there, and later, as you know, became head of the entire CIA for the United States. Right, under what, Reagan and Bush number one? Yep. Yeah. And then uh, he was fired, in fact, uh, when a guy named Ford became president. Well, actually, Ford was the official president. The real president was Kissinger, and, <laughs> and Kissinger fired Colby the moment he got in because Colby had done the most unspeakable act of all. He had gone before the U.S. Senate mm. and he had said, yeah, the CIA committed some pretty horrible things and they had to change it and uh, on and on and right Colby actually said you need to take a look at what we're doing basically right that's right that's yeah. right he said you got to have oversight or you have a government onto your own and that's dangerous when you have a secret organization basically becoming a secret government anyway he okay. was fired right but that's occurred after uh, Vietnam and all that I uh, I got over there reported to Bill Colby and uh he read my credentials. That's why he asked I'd be assigned to him, and you know, with a law school degree, and, and instead of going to law school, did all this other nonsense, officer and jungle and airborne. He thought, hmm, this is what I need for my program. He was creating something called the Phoenix Program. Don't know if you've ever heard of it or know anything about it. Uh, was, was that that Cambodia? Well, the Phoenix Program was actually it, it was well intentioned. It was an assassination program, wasn't it? Yes. Yes, I hate to say it. Yeah. I denied that to myself for so many years. But yes, that's effectively what it was. But the goal, the reason for it, believe it or not, was kind of halfway reasonable at the time. Colby thought it was better to identify carefully the leadership of the enemy than send out teams to do them in rather than bomb entire villages. Right, kill all the people. Huh? Yeah. And, and the theory is good. It just it turned out to be pretty horrible. And... uh basically turned into an assassination program. And again, something that didn't have any oversight. Supposedly, the Phoenix didn't exist until a while ago. Well, it was denied, yes. Right. You might well guess it. Anyway, so I was long, well, I was directed by Colby to go to the Mekong Delta and be one of the ones that helped set it up and so on and so forth and develop it. That's another story for another day. But anyway... But I can give you a little part of that story right now if you want. The yeah, yeah, doctor, please. Because it did me and made me. Anyway, so I do my part in Vietnam. And and uh, by the way, I'm the first, last, and only one you get to meet or talk to in your life who became a senator without <laughs> ever setting foot in the United States. <laughs> That's right. I ran the campaign from Vietnam. The Army tried to stop me, but Colby, who was technically my official boss, gave me permission to go ahead and run from there even though it had never been done before, and all the publicity, world, national publicity they gave me back in the U.S. Uh, uh, ended up, I won the election. In fact, I got up in the morning going out on a chopper helicopter and read in the Stars and Stripes about some crazy cat in Vietnam <laughs> the election over there. Amazing. So anyway... Uh, and you remained a state senator for, what, 16 years? 16 years, yeah. yeah. But anyway, so... After I had gotten out of the legislature years, years later, in the year 2000, I returned for the first time to Vietnam. <laughs> well, no, the first time since 75. In 75, I was a senator, but I went back and 
Uh, Saigon was falling, if you remember. Uh, I don't know how old you are, but Saigon was collapsing. And I decided I'd go back and finish some unfinished business, and that unfinished business was locating and rounding up this little girl I met over there. <laughs> and uh, got that done, and uh, in the process, made a trade with the ambassador over there. I were in something called Operation Baby Lift. Maybe you read about it. Yeah, you lifted a whole uh, bunch of young kids out of there. 2,834 of the half-American, half-Vietnamese kids who were total outcasts, by the way. They were considered what? Because because the, they, because they had American blood as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. Remember Saigon was falling, the hmm. communists were taking over anyway. And uh, so I got that done and uh, got decorated then by the President of the United States and named as one of the eight most outstanding Vietnam War veterans. On and on and on, but that's not my story. My story is, so I returned for the first time. I did get the little girl out. And I ended up marrying her, and she uh, is the most perfect wife and mother on this planet Earth, my wife. Mm. We have four kids we've uh, hatched and raised since uh, then. But anyway, so I go back for the first time in the year 2000. My wife has been going back for years, visiting and seeing her family back there. Unknown to me, uh, had gotten a few thousand dollars every time she could kind of nickel and dime me for a little money, and I never thought about it, but anyway... So we arrived for the first time, me, for the first time back there. And, and, uh, in the first time in 25 years? Huh? Yep. In in uh, year 2000. Okay. And uh, it's hotter than the hubs there. <laughs> and uh, get off the airplane and into the airport there at Tonsonut. Well, I mean, Saigon, officially called Ho Chi Minh City now. But anyway, mm-hmm. and I'm kind of nervous. I think, I want to make sure we have a nice air-conditioned room, Mommy, you know. <laughs> He said, you no worry. You just, you no worry. So we get on the bus or van she's got rented to go down into the Mekong Delta. And uh, every once in a while on there, I'd remind her, hey, you know, I really want to make sure we have a decent place to stay. She'd just tell me, you no worry, you know. <laughs> anyway, about two and a half hours later, we cross the Delta there and go down into uh, around Kanta, where I was stationed. And we pull up in front of this beautiful, beautiful kind of mansion-type house right there on the main road through uh, Vietnam, and I asked her, oh, gosh, what do we got to stop here? What do we have to do here, see the governor or something? Mm-hmm. And she says, no, this is where you stay. This is your house. Hmm. I says, what? She said, this is your house. She had bought a place. Unknown to me, that previous 10 or so years she'd been going back, she'd been building a house there. Amazing. She's this tremendous assistance and help from some local official there. So uh, uh, she wants me to go in and meet the man who helped her and did everything and guided her while she was gone and mm-hmm. made the arrangements, the contracting, and on and on. So I go in, and there's this guy. He's a general. You know, you can tell immediately he's wearing his uniform. And she say, she introduces me and says, you know, this, this John DeCant, my husband, he looks at me and says, oh, we know all about you. We know all about you. Oh, uh, my wife tells you, he says, oh, no, no, he says, we know all about you. And I said, okay, and then I, I thanked him abundantly mm. for having helped my wife get this thing done, you know. And Did he know you from the war? Huh? Did he know you from well, the I'll war? Keep going, you'll change my whole way of thinking about everything in a moment. Okay. So anyway, I tell him, okay, okay, and thank him abundantly, and, uh, and he'd tell me that he wasn't the one who helped her. He was, he was his boss, his commander, who 
helped her. He's now the commander of the Mekong Delta, but his boss was uh, before, and that was who told him to help him. I said, oh, well, tell him thank you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got thinking to myself, and I wonder, if he's the boss down here, he might know what happened to my old counterpart in this program, Phoenix program. I, I obviously didn't know who the Vietnamese, good or bad, or whatever were, and so we had something called counterparts. Everybody was an officer in Vietnam will remember this. Anyway, a counterpart, and he was assigned to me to help me, and we were putting together this Phoenix program. And of from, course, from the South Vietnamese Army? Yeah, 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 right. Okay, okay. So anyway, so I think, well, heck, maybe he knows what happened to my old buddy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I said, do you ever know a man named Colonel Dot? He laughed. He said, General Dot, General Dot. <laughs> I said, no, no, I, I, I had a friend named Colonel. He said, you know him, Colonel Dot. Anyway, I said, oh, you know him? He said, oh, yes, yes, know him well. And I thought, well, maybe he knows if he's alive. I said, is he still alive? And he said, no, no, he, he, he died about six months ago. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, he probably died in prison. I said, well, did he die in prison, you know? He laughed. He said, no, no, no. He my boss. He my commander. I take his place. He commander of Mekong Delta before me. <laughs> And I thought, well, there must be a mistake here. I said, no, no, this was Colonel Dot, my friend, my my counterpart or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he laughed. He said, you know him, Colonel Dot. He General Dot. I said, well, if he was your boss, then that means he laughed. He said, yes, he our man, not your man. He our man. You understand what I'm telling you? He was, he had infiltrated. He was he was like at the very top. A top colonel. Why? Yeah, and uh, he became the general in command of the Mekong Delta after the other side took over. Meanwhile, he had infiltrated, and I had been assigned basically. Oh, my gosh. So anyway, you can imagine who we were probably killing, but that's neither here nor there. And we haven't done one thing to talk about what I call, what you called me about, so... Well, it's a, I did my Vietnam yeah. duty and uh, became a senator, and I uh, was there 16 years, and then... Got out and decided that I'd practice law like I had been kind of part-time while I was a senator. And right, which you still do. Which I still do pretty actively, yes. Mm-hmm, okay. And uh, then along the way, I somehow got involved in this bizarre, strange uh, case because I had been very, very, very prominent in the state of the senator and active and head of some pretty important committees. They... Uh, uh, press came to me and was asking me uh, what I thought about this because this credit union had been raided and uh, when the credit union was raided, you remember all kinds of SNLs were going down. Oh yeah, oh yeah. All right, well let's let's do that then. Let's talk about Franklin Credit yeah, Union. The late '80s and early '90s, uh, and uh, so one of the other things that happened: these stories started floating out on the streets of Omaha, you know, Omaha, the main city of Nebraska, about these kids. You know, from the age of 10, 12, 14, 15, uh, telling about, well, hell, they knew uh, Larry King, the man who ran the credit union. Uh, they were on his private plane. Well, I thought, oh, this has to be nonsense and insane. And they, they were at this party with this senator or this congressman or this whoever or whatever. And I was one of the first ones when I was asked because then they started talking about how they hauled, were acting as couriers, taking drugs, and how they were engaged in sex with. You know, people who who. names would immediately mm-hmm. uh, recognize, and I was one of the first ones, and it said, you know, 
when I was asked by the press, well, this all has to be the biggest nonsense and, and insanity. I said, if I ever believed one doggone word of it, I'd be the first one to step forward and do something about this, particularly because of the young people involved, the children, so to speak. And I said, this has to be totally la-la land. And then I got this letter from this kid named uh, Paul Benassi. Right. And arrested on the very night, the very evening, or whatever it was, that that credit union had been raided. He had been arrested and hauled off to jail. He was about a 16 or 17-year-old kid at the time. John, the credit union got raided right after the elections, too, right? It was like the day after. The night of. The night of. The day of the election. 1988. Yep. So who was that? That that was uh, Bush 1, Right. Uh, yeah. Because he he was 88 to 92, and then Clinton took over in 92. Correct. Okay. And believe it or not, I, I was at the 1988 Republican National Convention, and at the 84 one is the number one national delegate elected from Nebraska, by the way. <laughs> Led to, uh, in the one case, what's his name, Reagan, Reagan and Case Bush. Right. I was, uh, so you were a Republican bringer of delegates for the Republican Party. Uh, is the Pope Catholic. Right, right, okay. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in Nebraska. It's, uh, we'll talk about the Pope later, okay? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so uh, I, uh, where were we? Uh, let's see. We are uh, basically Franklin Credit Union. You're getting all these stories, but you're not buying it. Yeah, so I got this letter from this kid who had been arrested that Right, morning. Paul Bonacci. He said, I know you don't believe any of this. It was handwritten, scribbled, and Mr. DeCamp, but if you'd come see me, I could tell you and show you stuff that would make you understand and believe it. I thought, well, I better put my actions and money where my mouth is, so to speak. So I went over and and decided I'd meet with the kid and listen to his tale or whatever, and I met with him. And he was in jail at the time. Oh, yeah, he had been arrested the night of, or the same day the credit union was raided. Okay. You'll understand as we want the whole method more than coincidental. Right. Anyway, and uh, he started telling me these tales and just one story after another uh, with prominent names and dates and places and so on and so forth. And I says, well, you do understand, Paul. I'm, I'm, I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm just saying this this sounds like uh, something out of a fairy tale, you know, or, or or a nice wild tale. But and I, say, I said, do you have any proof whatsoever? And he said, well, yeah, kind of. And I said, oh, well, what's that? He said, well, when I was a little boy, my grandpa made me always learn to keep a diary, and I kept a diary all my life. In fact, even up till the day I came in here, and since I've been in here, I've been keeping one, too. And I said, okay. And I said, where's your diary? Mm-hmm. He says, well, I've got it hidden. I can't get out. It, 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 I, I can't get out to get it, but I'll tell you where it is. And he told me, and so I go, sure enough, in this place, there's this... <laughs> lengthy, on, long-winded diary every single day, kind of carefully talking. It talks about crazy-type stuff. Mm-hmm. Same thing he was talking about in jail. So I thought, well, uh, I'll check this out a little further, but this is more of the la-la-la-la-la-la-la. You're thinking he's got more of a psychological problem. Yeah, so I talked to this psychiatrist who was head of what it was one of the major universities. He was head of psychiatry at one of the major universities. Mm-hmm. A medical center or something for maybe it was Creighton University. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in Omaha, yeah. Yeah, and uh, 
I knew he had been hauled in there to investigate this kid, examine him, and so I went to see him. And I said, look, I just thought he better before I drop this thing and, and walk away. At least check out and have corresponding proof that, that the kid's nuts, so to speak. And I said, did he tell you all these strange, crazy stories? He said, yes, he did. He said, I was with him a lot longer than you were on a couple of separate occasions. And I said, so then he is nuts, right? And he says, no. He said he has something what's called a multiple personality. Mm-hmm. I says, well, uh, okay. What's a multiple personality? He says, well, difficult as this is for you to understand or believe, the kid actually has within him several different people. He, he's not one person. He's, he's A or B or C. Uh, and uh, he goes on and on. And you know, I says, well, uh, these things really exist, huh? And he says, well, yes. He says they're not that well known, but he says, uh, you remember the movie or the, the stories about somebody named Sybil? Right? Mm-hmm. He says, well, not really. He says, well, do you remember the movie The Manchurian Candidate? Right, right. And I says, uh, mm, no. <laughs> anyway, explains them both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I've interviewed and, Colin Ross, Dr. Colin Ross, the guy that wrote Bluebird. Oh, yeah. I, well, I think that. I came across uh, some information about him along the way, but try to move as fast as we can because this is just one piece of this incredible puzzle. So anyway, I said, well, I says, uh, so then it's multiple personalities, whatever that is, some mental disease, and he is nuts. He says, no, 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 no. I says, well, he's obviously lying or making up all this stuff, and he says, I actually believe he says that he's doing exactly the opposite. He's telling 100% the truth. He says, you see, multiple personality doesn't have to lie. They simply switch personalities. Mm -hmm. And uh, he goes on and on. And he says, I would like to see individual, separate, totally independent verification or, or proving of what he's claimed here or there. He says, but I absolutely believe it. I thought, oh, my God. Instead of getting out of it, now I've been forced to get in deeper if I'm going to live up to what I said. Mm-hmm. So I took those diaries. I told him about him. He says, well, if I were you, I'd get him examined. I says, examine? How do you mean? He says, get a forensic examination or what do they call it where they can go and actually analyze ink. Mm, find out when it was written, maybe. Find out when it was written. And mm. sure enough, they did that, and it cost a small fortune, by the way. But they came back, and they showed me or proved to me that this kind of ink was only used during a two-year period, so this section clearly was written during that time, and this was uh, something else on it. Anyway, they right. they absolutely verified or validated that it had been written in the time frame. So okay. I found one interesting part of the thing I thought I'd check out further, and it told about how he, this Paul Benassi kid, was used kind of as a bait or, or lure to lure another boy into a car, uh, and then literally kidnapped the kid, and then later he was taken with that kid to forced to have sex with him. As they were, and on and on and on, the kid then became part of this. Ultimately, part of this. So I thought, well, this is interesting because I can actually check this out, can't I? He put in there a date, a name of a kid, mm-hmm. uh, a, a town where he said he had been taken to, names of people involved. So I go back in the media of that period, you know, the 
Des Moines Register newspaper, right, sure enough. Right, right. It was the biggest news of the day back then. This kid named Johnny Gosh. Johnny Gosh. Captain right. and so on. He'd never been seen again and, and, and whatever. So I contacted the Gosh family. I wrote, I said, I don't want you to be angry or offended. I'm not trying to disturb your life or anything, but here's, here's my tale briefly. I've met this kid and he claims to have actually been a participant in this and, and knows about the kidnapping and has more information. Mm-hmm. He said, if you're interested, uh, I'd, I'd set it up so you could visit with him where he's locked up in prison, uh, awaiting trial and so on and so forth. And if you don't want anything more to do with it, I'll sure understand. I'd hate to uh, have somebody bother me with this stuff. Right, right, right. I felt I had an obligation to let you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, I uh, was surprised, but I got a letter back, or a call back, actually, and a father named John Gosh wanted to know if I would do exactly what I said, arrange a meeting. So he came to Lincoln, Nebraska, Omaha it was, actually, and... Uh, I set up a meeting between him and the boy, and he spent half a day or more in prison there talking to him when he came out. Uh, after being with the boy alone, talking to him quizzing, I said, well, can I ask you something? I said, is, is, is your opinion that the kid is nuts? He says, what do you mean nuts? And he says, well, I said, well, uh, you know, claiming to have been there. And he says, absolutely. He had information that no one <laughs> who didn't know Johnny's body in detail Would have known. and things that that have never been released to the press or anything else about the case and the kidnapping and everything. And uh, he said, I'm, I'm absolutely satisfied he was there. And Well, with that chapter then, I ended up getting so deeply immersed in this and involved in it and representing the children and finding one horror after another. And then, as I say, eventually uh, I wrote that book, and that's a separate story into itself. And that's how I opened the book, by the way, why I even wrote it. Right, right, when you talk about Bill Colby. But uh, look, uh, we're right at the bottom of the hour. We're going to take a short break here, okay? I babbled a long time, didn't I? No, it's great. And I'll throw a piece of music down here, and I'm going to grab you off the air for a second here. But uh, anyway, everybody, my guest is former Nebraska State Senator John DeCamp. He's also the author of an amazing book called The Franklin Cover-Up. He's been involved in all kinds of just remarkably strange and, and, and bizarre facets of this story over, what, going on 20 years now almost, John? You know, yeah. uh, which is involved in '88. Yeah, I mean, and and I, I, I almost, never heard a thing about it. I wish I didn't know any of it. It's it's absolutely unbelievable, and and um, you know, I, I'm I'm not even going to take a break because we don't have that much time with you. You know, I'm I'm actually looking at. I've got a copy of the Washington Times from uh, June 29th, 1989. This was the most amazing headline that I'd ever seen, and it says homosexual prostitution inquiry ensnares VIPs with Reagan, comma Bush. Callboys took midnight tour of White House, and then it shows uh, it's got a copy of a visa bill or something like that. But uh, we're going to forego the break anyway, uh, John, because all this stuff is just so remarkable, and we don't have that much time. And I want to get as much uh, in as we can. Don't interrupt. I mean, if you need to do your break, you go ahead and do it. We'll have another hour or two or ten or a hundred next time or whatever. We'll do our first one today. And don't let me screw that up for you. Well, you're not screwing it up. Uh, let's just move, move right along. I want to I want to know a little bit more about Larry King. Uh, before we get too much more uh, into what was happening with the boys, could you tell us a little bit more about the guy that was running the credit union? Absolutely. This man named Larry King was managing this, operating it, this credit union. And uh, Larry King, he was a black man, and uh, I'm a little plump, but he weighed about as much as three of me would weigh. Mm-hmm. And so he was a big-sized fella. 
Anyway, Larry King was uh, somebody I knew, had known and heard of when I was a senator because he was, uh, I was head of banking and commerce and the insurance committee and, of course, uh, supervision, so to speak, or whatever over banking and finance matters. But uh, Larry King, uh, on the night the credit union was raided, he, uh, he was uh, arrested identified fairly quickly that there was $40 million minimum missing, just flat missing, that had apparently been taken. One thing led to another, and they started they started uh, finding uh, indications that Larry had, had taken this money. Now, Larry was a man earning $16,000 a year. But one of the things that interestingly showed up was he also had his own little private residence in Washington, D.C., on Embassy Row, you know, where all the embassies <laughs> or nations are. Mm-hmm. He paid $5,000 a month. This is back in 19... Right, right, right. This is huge money 15 years ago. $5,000 a month right. at this place. Here's okay. entering 15 or 16000 a year. Right. He can afford to... Anyway... Okay, all right. So he's got a lifestyle that's not quite appropriate for his income. He's got a lifestyle that's, that's not quite appropriate, and uh, you asked me about Larry King, I had actually run across Larry King, because as I told you a little earlier, I was uh, number one vote-getter in the state of Nebraska, pledged as a delegate in the 84 convention, Republican National Convention, 88 convention, pledged to the Republican candidate, you know, mm-hmm. Reagan and Bush, and uh, attended those, and of course, if you, uh, typical re- listener, probably doesn't know this, but Larry King had his own little pluck of national fame already. He was officially listed in Time Magazine and the National Network and on the cover of a couple of them as the fastest rising black star in the Republican Party. Hmm. 1984 and 88, Larry King. Amazing. He opened the And opened both <laughs> Republican National Conventions. He was the one that sang the national anthem, solo song opening the convention with the national anthem at both of those conventions. And I had been to one of Larry King's biggest parties ever thrown. It was Mm -hmm. at South Fork Ranch, you know, where they filmed the movie Dallas or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, and Larry King at the Republican convention there in Dallas uh, threw one of his parties, a big one for all the people at the convention. And I have never been to such a massive and very clearly expensive party in my life cost somebody a fortune, and Larry King was wandering around all their night as a celebrity, and he was, and Maureen Reagan, the daughter of President Reagan, you may remember, draped mm-hmm. over him, kind of mm-hmm. like a big old blanket, holding on to him and hugging him and whatever. Anyway, and so I was familiar with Larry. Now, that's another thing that, that helped you verify that Bonacci was telling the truth, right? Oh. Wasn't he at that party? He was at that party. My golly, you have uh, read the book, haven't you? I have read it, yes. That's interesting, yeah. That's one little detail. 99 out of 100 people wouldn't remember. Yes, Paul was at that party. And later when I uh, went back and started quizzing him, he had details about the party that were totally accurate. But then he started telling me about these after parties. Because I said, well, I was there, Paul. Mm -hmm. I didn't see any of this crap. And I was uh, as high-ranking a person that the doggone uh, party or 
whatever. And he says, well, they don't do it right out there in front of everybody. You know, he says, these are the after parties. He kept calling them the after party. Mm-hmm. And uh, he told some of the things in particular folk that he'd met there and provided favors for, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, I, do, uh, I do. So anyway, as this thing got developing, I was the one that encouraged, had to put my money where my mouth was or my actions because, as I said, I was the one that said, first of all, this has to all be nonsense and unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So uh, I volunteered to represent this kid, Paul, and it led down a, a road of insanity and things that I still today wish I never knew and uh, still find difficult to believe, but I know are true because I checked them from one end to the other and had to prove them in court when I ended up finally getting a trial and won a million-dollar judgment against this man, Larry King. And interesting thing, I'll just mention it now in case I forget it later on, the lawsuit that I filed on behalf of this boy, Paul Benassi, against Larry King, actually the number one named defended in the lawsuit when I filed it wasn't Larry King. Larry King was number two. Mm-hmm. Who was number, number one? Number one was the Archdiocese, the Catholic Archdiocese uh-huh. of Omaha and the Catholic Archbishop, and then a couple particular or a particular priest from Boyce. Right, the guy that was running Boyce. Right, sure. Anyway, they you were know. the number one defendant. And, uh, and that was the first, first, of, its, that was the first of its kind. The United States of America of mm-hmm. this type or whatever claiming that there was this kind of activity going on between priests and, and young boys and whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, and, uh, you know, John, I got, I got to tell you something, just uh, just for the record, and, and uh, my listeners know a little bit about this, but you, you mentioned that you were surprised that I knew a particular detail or whatever. Well, I know a lot of details um, because in 1975, when, when you were in Saigon, I was 11 years old, and I was having similar experiences to what was reported in your book in, in Rockford, Illinois, a place in northern Illinois. Oh, yeah. Well, those people came. I don't know if you know, they had big problems there in that diocese there, mm-hmm. and they came to Nebraska to meet with me, and they met then with the head of Boys Town, former head of Boys Town, mm-hmm. Monsignor Up. Remarkable. He, uh, offered them all kinds of uh, ideas and recommendations on where to go, what to look for. In fact, I'm trying to remember some of the, lady, some of the people involved. There was a Helen... Helen, somebody involved. Helen there. Thomas, probably. Yeah, I think that's right. Anyway, yeah. so maybe you know about that. Yeah. Well, anyway, it, it was you know as as a kid, I went through some of the same stuff, and I and I was trying you know for for a large part of my you know, once I became an adult, trying to work all this stuff out, I I had to I had to learn you know a lot about what was going on, and, and that's what eventually led me to you, and the Franklin story was my own you know my own sort of search trying to figure out what had happened to me. So. Uh, no, John. Yeah. So anyway, I'm 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 probably as well versed on this stuff as anybody who's ever spoken with you about it on the radio. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad to know that. We'll keep some communication going when this is all over. Okay. Yeah. 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 Anyway, one of the I tell you one of the uh, one of the first actions that occurred was the Catholic Church, and this was the first one in the United States of America, I believe. If you'll check, mm-hmm. first one of these filed against the church, claiming this type of activity. And at the time, of course, it was outrageous to even make these allegations and claims, and the Catholic Church and the Archdiocese was immediately, the judge ordered them dismissed out of the lawsuit. Right, right, right. Just, just out of hand, yes, yes. Out of hand, because, mm-hmm. good mm-hmm. God, anybody would dare to make these accusations. Mm-hmm. So, uh, kind of jump to the, the front of this thing here. 
So I got involved, and we'll discuss that in detail as another program or two, whatever you want, because I think it's important Americans know about this. And I ain't making any of this up, as I say. I had to prove my case over and over in front of a federal judge who basically almost personally attacked me for daring to make these accusations against an institution as respectable as Boys Town and on and on. But uh, as the case got going, and and I convinced uh, Senator Schmidt, a good friend of mine, to open a Senate investigation, which he did, and and uh, they found out the power of uh, politicians is pretty little when you take on the key people in the FBI and at the very, very, very top of government and so on and so forth. And uh, just the strangest doggone thing, but as it got going, I convinced them the Senate committee to hire to do some investigation my old buddy and friend, William E. Colby. Mm-hmm. Now, Colby had been fired as head of the CIA when uh, Ford got to be there, fired by Kissinger, who was really the president, I keep saying, but anyway, mm-hmm. and uh, replaced by a man named, do you know who? Who, who was Colby replaced by? Yep. Oh, let's see who took his place. I don't know. Guy yeah. whose last name was Bush. Oh, yeah. Happened yeah, to be the yeah, father. Senior, right. He happened to be the father of another young man who's now president, named Bush. Mm-hmm. And at that time, this Bush, Bush Senior, was in fact uh, just uh, another uh, prominent politician before he became all these other powerful things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So anyway, at the height of Franklin, after after uh, the investigator hired by the committee uh, went to Chicago and uh, to pick up some stuff, flew in his private plane. That was Caridori or... or uh, Caridori. Right, yeah. Gary Caridori. What a, Gary Caridori. Gary what a, and he was amazing, who did amazing work. He what did a, amazing work. He was good. But then he had a reputation of having found lost people in Switzerland and all mm-hmm. kinds before he ever got involved in this craziness. Mm-hmm. He, and that's, he was hired by the committee and was doing incredible work. And the kids had faith in him because he, he just knew how to, anyway, kind of talk to kids and get the information without spooking them or scaring them or whatever. Anyway, at the height of the stuff, he gets, he, he goes, flies his private plane, takes his little boy with him, eight-year-old boy, mm-hmm. and he flies to Chicago to ostensibly or allegedly just go to a baseball game there. And uh, what, in fact, he was doing was he was meeting and picking up uh Evidence from... A contact who mm-hmm. told him if he'd meet with him, he'd give him stuff, and he did. And he called Senator Schmidt back from Chicago that night. Senator Schmidt, the head of that committee that would have been set up, and my recommendation, I said, well, you know, the first thing the legislature, the Senate should do is look into this and start finding out what is or isn't true. Because I said, I was one of the first ones when I started in this. didn't believe any of it. Now I'm up to my eyebrows, and, and it's just frightening. But anyway, so... They hired him, and one of the first things, after he went to pick up this stuff in Chicago, he called Senator Schmidt. He said, we got him, we got him, we got him by the, well, you know what, mm-hmm. we got him by the, and he says, set up a committee hearing, I'm flying home tonight, I'll be there, or I'm flying home early in the morning, or whatever, I'm, I'll, I'll be there, and mm-hmm. I've got him, I've got pictures and other things. He says, this time they can't get away. And this was Rusty Nelson he was meeting with. Yes, but I never wrote that in the book. I think mm. you had to know that from other stuff I might have said sometime. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's exactly correct. And Rusty later verified that for me, completely separate and independent, mm-hmm. after 
I got him out of prison. He was the one that verified. Indeed, that was... Anyway, uh. so uh, Caridori takes off that night in his plane to bring the stuff back, and right outside Chicago, his plane blows up to a million pieces, and this stuff is spread all over, and that's a whole other story. Right, him and his son are killed. So he and his son are both killed there, and uh, uh, that was when I recommended the committee hire Bill Colby, who now had his own private investigative agency, you know, since he left the CIA. He right, again, Bill Colby. investigative agency, which is kind of natural. He was a lawyer, but he also had about as much investigating ability as anything. He was with mm-hmm. the original guy, Wild Bill Donovan, or whatever he always mm-hmm. called him, who helped set up and create the CIA, you know, mm-hmm. during right after World War II, and he right, was with right. him in World War II. Anyway, and so uh, they uh, hired Bill, and Bill... Uh, Started working for it and doing it and on and on and on, and that gets us to the point where I tell about how I even wrote this thing. Right, right. Let's do that. Let's tell that story. Well, that's how I opened the book, the foreword, and it's been the same foreword from the beginning of the book, even though I've updated the actual book about, oh, I don't know, four times now, and the last update with all new stuff in it added on to it. Everything maintained there was before this is the latest development, you know. From popes to you name it, but anyway, right? Columbine, um, Oklahoma City. There's all this stuff. Yeah, we're all tied in. It's amazing. So. Columbine kids, and then I represented the grand juror and the Oklahoma bombing that indicted McVeigh and had additional. Influence. Anyway, just enough of that for now. But anyway, so here's my old friend Colby doing an investigation, and uh, as it gets hotter and hotter and more stuff pouring out and and everything, uh, I go and meet with Colby, which I did every every once in a while anyway before uh, before I uh, ever got involved in this Franklin thing. I used to see him in Washington and stay with him at his house there in Washington. And uh, I went to see him and I said, Bill, I am at wit's end as to what to do next. I says, it seems every time I get a, something going or developed, uh, that person ends up dead and, or blown up like Caridori or this or that. I says, I just, I need some guidance from somebody that's a hell of a lot smarter and knows how to do these things better than I. I says, tell me, what do you recommend I do? And he looks at me and he tells me as straightforward as he can. He says, I will tell you exactly what you should do, what I want you to do. I says, thank goodness. He says, you get as far away from this whole thing as fast and immediate as you can you just get as far away from it as you can. And I says, what? He says, listen, John, I love you. I love your kids. I love your family. You're one of the best people I've ever known, he said to me. He says, and I want you to get as far away from this as you can. I said, Bill, this makes no sense for you to tell me this. I says, here's someone who, if anybody knows better than anybody... All the evil that's occurring, and, and and the kids and the horrors that are occurring there, and uh, how some very prominent, powerful people are actually deeply involved in this, and on and on. I said, and you're telling me I should just walk away? I says, I can't believe you're telling me this. And he says, Well, let me tell you my personal experience that kind of shaped my life. Final uh, defining moment, if you want to call it that. He says. Mm-hmm. Last night, and this was back in 1991, three weeks before the fall of uh, 
of the Soviet Union and the Berlin Wall and all that nonsense and the Soviet Union, uh, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he said, last night I was on an airplane back from Moscow. He says, I'd been in Moscow for a straight two weeks. I said, what the blazes is the former head of the CIA doing in Moscow? <laughs> said, well, believe it or not, I was meeting with some of the top officials there, discussing things with them, uh, acting as kind of a uh, rep of the United States unofficially, uh, so on and so forth. I said, okay. And he says, I was staying in the, in a, in the most plush hotel, uh, in, in all of the Soviet Union right there on Red Square. I said, okay. And he says, couldn't sleep. I was thinking about all the momentous events I was sitting in on and, and, and what, what was happening. And I repeat, this was exactly this meeting between me and Bill. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like uh, three weeks before the fall of the Soviet Union, when it all imploded, if you remember. I do. I was in Germany at the time. Okay, anyway, and he, and he says, I couldn't sleep. Uh, he says, I thought I'd go for a walk. He says, of course. You know, the head of the former head of the CIA wandering around at night, middle of the night on Red Square. <laughs> uh, kind of frowned upon more than a little bit. He said, I thought I'd, I'd go and see what would happen. Just walk. He says, it was here 1 o'clock or so in the morning. He says, I walk out my door. Guards are in the hall, you know, just... He says, I, I go down to the lobby, walk right out in the middle of Red Square there in the middle of the night. He says, I walk around and wander right up. Guards ignore me. Nobody paid attention, he says. And I walk right up to the tomb of Lenin and uh, so on, he says. And then it struck me. I says, uh, Bill, what in blazes struck you? He says, that it was over. That it was over. I said, "Well, it's over." He says, "That the, 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 the Soviet Union the, uh, was doomed." I said, "So uh, okay." And I repeat, this was three weeks before the fall of Saigon when he was telling me this. Mm-hmm. I mean, not Saigon, uh, fall of uh, the Soviet Union. Right, right. Anyway, and, and he says, he says, and, and uh, then I realized something even worse for me personally. Hey, Bill, what was your great revelation first? He says, that this walk, this march for me in the middle of the night with nobody caring, nobody paying attention in the middle of Red Square was the only victory parade I and all the people like me who had fought the Cold Cold War. This was the only celebration or victory parade we were going to have. It wasn't going to be a victory parade down Madison Avenue. It wasn't going to be this, it wasn't going to be that. This was going to be my victory parade and representing all the other CIA and other people who had fought the Cold War, which was, he said, much tougher than World War II or World War One, and much more significant, blah, blah, blah. And so I'm listening and, quite frankly, not appreciating, I guess, his tale quite that much. I said, okay, Bill, so what's my great lesson I'm, I'm supposed to have learned? He says, what I'm trying to tell you, sometimes there are forces too powerful and too evil for us to deal with in the way we would want or believe or even know absolutely has to be dealt with. He says, and sometimes you have to face up to that fact and understand that for your own survival so that you can keep accomplishing something and, and for your family, I mean, you just 
to walk away. Mm-hmm. He says there isn't going to be a victory parade. You're in a sinister world of evil that's beyond anything that you can imagine. And uh, he says it's time for you to get as far away from this thing as you can. He says, for your sake, for your family's sake. And I said, well, maybe I'd better start wearing a gun. He laughed. I can still remember. He says, oh, yeah, that'll get you killed in a hurry. He says, that's the last thing you need to be doing. I says, what can or should I be doing? He says, I told you. You walk away. And I said, well, should I do anything to defense or protect myself? He says, yeah, there is something you can do. I says, okay, what's that? He says, tell your story. I says, what? He says, tell your story. Whether one other person on the whole planet Earth ever believes one single thing you're saying. He said is not important. What's important is that you've put it in print, you've put it in writing, you've told everything you know or can tell. Therefore, there's no percentage in doing the end because that only gives you more credibility mm-hmm. or believability or respectability. Right. Mm-hmm. He says they'll try to make a nutcase of you whatever time there is, but he says that's the best thing you can do Tell your story. So I went, sat down, and began writing. And I wrote the entire first edition of that Franklin cover-up and uh, published it, believe it or not, myself. Just got it printed. I think I printed five or 10,000 copies and sent it here and there. To, and uh, never have been or since ever spent one single penny promoting, advertising, whatever, uh, the book, but it's now over 188,000 copies that have been sold. Amazing. And uh, uh, most of them used to be through uh, all the bookstores. And then here about, oh, I'm going to say six months ago, from remarkably, Barnes & Noble and uh, Ingram Books or whatever suddenly quit ordering it. They ordered it, tons of them by the case every every month, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have this strange tale that it's out of print. If you go in there and ask them now, they'll tell you it's out of print. Is that right? And I have, you can buy it on Amazon, Amazon.com. They still are mm-hmm. buying them, but the ones that sold the most, Borders, Barnes & Noble, Ingram, all those, for some reason, somebody has Put the trying to on it, hmm? suppress the book by, by <laughs> giving official stuff in their computers, even though I've gone and tried to correct it and told them, repeatedly sent letters, it's not out of print at all. Latest edition came out three, four. So uh, I did. I sat down and wrote the book, and that's the uh, smartest thing I ever did. As I say, whether anybody believes any of it, because I'd been told these things thing once upon a time, I, I would have said, "Yeah, right, uh huh," mm-hmm. and uh, la 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 la. You know well, I mean? well, I mean, the the close investigator though has to believe it. I mean, I mean, these are stories that are. In the public well, history. just one piece after another. That's what I tried to do in this book was one thing after another. If I said it, offer some objective, tangible evidence other than just, uh, you know, just uh, saying something corresponding, completely independent, verifiable uh, evidence, one piece after another. And I think, oh, I mean, I it's, think that's why, yeah. oh, after the first edition came out, when that first book was printed, uh-huh. It was kind of interesting. There was this big press conference. Like seven or eight different attorneys were there, including, I think, former two former U.S. attorneys. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Representing... Everybody getting down on you. Representing the church. And they were... They, they said, uh, you know, Spokesman says, this is the most libelous, slanderous book ever written, and this man will be destroyed, and his bar license will be taken, and blah, blah, blah. So I did the exact opposite of them. In a way... 
I held a press conference like the next day, and I says, hey, I have to agree with these guys. These are the worst things anyone could write or say about another human being. And I said, however, every one of those lawyers that were there, and this was before that lawsuit was completed where I won the million dollars mm-hmm. and had all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff, and just when I was developing it, but I said, every lawyer, the first thing they learn in law school almost is, in cases of libel and slander, there is one absolute, total defense, and it's called truth is a defense. If you're able to prove, even though it might be more horrible than anything, mm-hmm. if you're able to prove the claim you're making, for example, if you claim that this famous movie star did this and did that and killed her husband secretly and blah, 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 uh, if you're able to prove it to the satisfaction of a jury... That is 100% a defense. And you might keep that in mind, people listening to the families. Listen, truth is an absolute defense, is the mm-hmm. official phrase. Mm-hmm. And I said, I've told the truth here, and I have only told a fraction of what I absolutely know and believe, but only if I could prove it. And yes, I said I've used names, but only if I was ready to back it up and prove it. And there was, as a result of uh, that book, only one lawsuit, and here's the best news, that lawsuit was filed by me, John DeCamp, against something called the Great Atlantic Telecast Company at some television network out on the East Coast, uh, North Carolina or somewhere, and they had had a couple of prominent, prominent people, including one who was running for president at the time. Didn't win, by the way. Anyway, one who was running for president and, and one other, oh, the new police chief. Hmm. And the former police chief, by the way, in a town called Omaha, yeah. in my book, they uh, had been on the TV uh, station there and said, because I'd gone to Wilmington at the request of some people, Wilmington, North Carolina, which is where this was. Yes, I know there's a Wilmington, Delaware, but this is Wilmington, North Carolina. Anyway, and I had been uh, giving some speeches to uh, university folk there and telling about the book and so on and so forth. And these other guys, the police chief and and this uh, presidential candidate, at the time went on television there and said this is the most terrible, horrible thing, and it's all lies, all lies, all lies. And the TV station stupidly said, well, you heard these people, and uh, you're going to believe this guy DeCamp, or you're going to believe this man who's running for president and the police chief of your own city, uh, Wilmington, here. Right. And uh, so I sued them <laughs> for libel and slander, and interestingly enough, Three weeks after the lawsuit, they sent a team of lawyers to meet with me, and I met with them, and uh, they acknowledged that uh, maybe I uh, <laughs> had a good case, and so we reached a settlement, which is officially sealed and secret, but they had to pay me damages, and I'll say this, I'm not allowed to reveal the amount of dollar damages, but it's more than a dollar and less than a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So you can get somewhere in between. Okay. And... Uh, well, more than the dollar and not too much less than the 100000 But they had to pay me as settlement for their libel and slander, claiming the book was not true. Amazing. Well, so anyway, I think we've used up our hour, and I would love to talk to you a lot more as long as you want and explain in detail the book, particularly some of the later developments that keep happening. And as I say, the latest update just came out three or four months ago. And uh, no, I'm not uh, doing anything other than just given the information and uh, we'll go into the story in depth as it develops. All right, well we'll we'll, we'll definitely do that again. As you, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, 
when you were talking about you, you only published the tip of the iceberg about what you actually you know thought or assumed, only the stuff that you could verify and believe. I mean, and that's for the listeners it's out there. I mean, a frightening tip. You've read the book. Oh. You know, for example, yeah. I was the one that uh, you talked about the Washington Times. Mm. You knew the, I was the one that broke that along with the Bohemian Grove first time, that stuff, right. and a lot of other things. But right, that, there's, uh, so much, there's so much more. We, we really have just that, touched the tip. Uh, so. The stuff that I did break is uh, still rocking a lot of people I know, and... Uh, and uh, one after another, incident after incident is being proved and validated and proved. Yeah, and it goes and it goes on. Like Larry King's back back in Washington. Oh, Larry King's partner back then was this Greg Spence. Did you know that? What's his name? Spitz. Spence, the guy Spence. in the White House who Greg allegedly Spence. Craig Spence. That right, Craig right, right. blew his brains out after the story came out in the Washington Times. Yeah, he was Larry. King's partner. Unbelievable. Once again, one thing for me to claim it, but it's been validated and proved by others since then. Right, right. So I just thought you'd like to know Remarkable. that. Remarkable. All right, well, we could talk lots. We'll do it again, and uh, I thank you for the time you gave us tonight. You holler and coordinate when you want to do another shot, okay? I'll do it. Take care of yourself, and thanks again, all right? Be good. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. There you have it. Former state senator from Nebraska, John DeCamp, the author of The Franklin Cover-Up, and uh, a guy has so much remarkable information about what's happening at the top levels of government in this country. And uh, not just government. We'll talk a little bit more about it throughout the program tonight. We've got a couple hours that I can just sort of rant and rave about it. But uh, anyway, John is uh, doing great work, continues to, and we'll talk to him again in the very near future. All right, it's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Play another song here from Ben Boatwright. We'll be back in just a minute, okay? Iodine stains the skin. Why am I at the end of my road? Weak and thin, weak and thin.
Another one from Ben Boatwright. That's called Iodine. It's Mike Hayden. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Good stuff there from Ben Boatwright. The CD <clears throat> is called It's Okay, Just Pretend. And I was introduced to his music from a listener of the program, Bob Bolt. And uh, thanks, Bob, for turning me on to Ben's music. And if you want to find information about Ben on the web, I think you have to go to Yahoo. Go to the Yahoo groups. He has a Yahoo group. And just put in Ben Boatwright, just so it sounds, B-O-A-T-R-I-G-H-T. All right? Okay, so we just had John DeCamp for an hour. It was like five minutes. It goes so fast with a guy like him who's just uh, overflowing with experience and information. But the story that he tells is an ugly one, and uh, we'll continue it with him in the future, but we've got plenty of time to continue along in the program tonight. We've got another couple hours to go, and I'll uh, do my best to sort of fill in some of the gaps and uh, let you know some of the things that I've found along the way as well, okay? So, so yeah, DeCamp is an interesting character because he's basically an unimpeachable source. First of all, he he has, you know... Uh, a spotless history. The guy was a hero in Vietnam. He was a state senator, as you mentioned, ran the campaign from Vietnam, uh, held his seat for 16 years, was considered one of the most influential people in the state of Nebraska uh, for a long, long time, and was involved in the banking uh, industry. And he's an attorney, right? So he gets involved with the Franklin Credit Union, and has no no idea what's really going on. All he knows is that there are a bunch of people that are uh, uh, that are saying that they're getting ripped off, and that something fishy is going on at Franklin. And uh, it turns out that Larry King, the guy who was running the Franklin Credit Union and who was another one of the stars of the Republican Party back in the early and mid '80s, he was uh, as dirty as they come. And there was even evidence earlier on, uh, in the in the early 80s, and in the mid 80s, before this whole thing broke, because um, there's a whole bunch of people involved in this. Uh, uh, a family called the Webbs, Jared Webb, and his wife, uh, who were running a child care foster home deal there. They're tied in with Larry King, and they were uh, eventually found to be doing all kinds of nasty things to children in the foster home and uh, but because they had people that they knew in the legislature and in the courts a man named Pat Tripp as a matter of fact they were able to sort of slide by all the charges that were uh, that were laid against them 
and this was a way for uh, uh, for King to sort of skip a rap as well. Eventually, this would catch up to uh, to all of them. But uh, this guy Paul Bonacci <clears throat> was the big was the big break, really. And unfortunately, as as John DeCamp mentions, Gary Corridori had the smoking gun. Uh, Gary Caridori, I should say, and uh, had met with Rusty Nelson in Chicago. Rusty Nelson is another character that's a verifiable, you know, person in this whole story, who filmed a lot of this stuff. See, the way this works, we didn't really talk about it, about, about the, the the methodology and the, the the reasons that a lot of this stuff is going on. But uh, the way it works is like this: if if you can if you can do what they call compromise a person, a politician or a you know, a businessman or a priest or whoever, right? Then you can control them. So what you do is you throw big parties and uh you bring in the people that you wanna take advantage of and then you set them up with children, girls, boys, whatever. And then you take pictures. And this guy, Rusty Nelson, was a photographer. And he was a guy that took a lot of these pictures. And once you've got the pictures of the Politico doing the nasty with uh, somebody that he shouldn't be, or she shouldn't be, whatever the case, well, then you've got something against that person, and there's a good chance that they'll be pliable to do your bidding. Well, this is unfortunately very, very, very prominent and popular among government and political circles in this country. Believe it or not, that's the way a lot of this stuff works. Everybody's compromised, right? Everybody's blackmailing everybody. And it is as ugly as you can imagine, right? And John DeCamp is a guy who was right in the middle of it, right? And if you read the Franklin cover-up, you'll see just how, how high it goes and how deep it goes. And it's not just government, all over the board. You heard Father Tom Doyle a couple weeks ago. John DeCamp ran the first lawsuit against the Catholic Church some 15 years ago now uh, that had to do with the the Monsignor, quote-unquote, some Monsignor. Anyway, the Monsignor that was running Boys Town, and Boys Town is another one of these, you know, these places in Omaha, Nebraska that's supposed to be one of the best places to send your young men, right? Anyway, uh, they were taking boys from Boys Town and using them as drug couriers, sex slaves, the whole bit, you name it, right? Anyway, it goes on and on and on, and it is just um, a really unfortunate and ugly story. And it's so bad that that's one of its defenses, as a matter of fact, that it's so ugly that it turns everyone off immediately, that nobody even wants to talk about uh, the possibility that this might be happening. And it, and it hasn't ended. And when we talk to John DeCamp more in the future, you'll see very clearly that it hasn't ended. This guy, Larry King, uh, who was basically running the whole operation in Omaha 20 years ago, he's out of jail now. He's back in, uh, back in Washington. You know, Short memories people have. Some people. Anyway, the story just goes on. Right? This guy Paul Bonacci is amazing because he had this great recall and he was able to document all kinds of things that had happened 
over the years that uh, were just, you know, too solid in court to be def- to, to be uh, to be overcome. John DeCamp actually won. He won the lawsuit against Larry King. In other words, proved that what Paul Bonacci said was true, and got a million dollar judgment for the young man. And and he's never been able to collect that, by the way, from a guy who stole millions and millions of dollars. Maybe he can get it now that that, that guy's out of jail again. Who else was involved in this? Alan Bear. You might know Alan Bear. He was a business tycoon. He was the, he was the heir. Uh, to, I think he's dead now, but he was the heir to the Brandeis department store. He was also one of the one of the primary forces behind an investment uh, vehicle in Nebraska that was actually the word Nebraska backwards. It was called Axarben, Axarben, A K S A R B E N. He was a lawyer as well, owned owned, owned Bear Media. But anyway, he and he and uh, Larry King were buddies, and King used to provide children for. For this guy, for Alan Bear, and this is something that uh, that Troy Bonner uh, testified about. Anyway, that's just a couple of them. You know, there were many other allegations of people like Eugene Mahoney. Uh, he ran. He was. I, I forget exactly, but he he ran uh, another department in the Nebraska state government. Peter Citron. He was a columnist for the Omaha uh, World Herald. Harold Anderson. It's a judge in Omaha, Theodore Carlson, Thomas McKinney. But it wasn't just Omaha. I mean, this stuff went all around the nation. These kids talked about being shuttled all around. They testified that they'd been taken from Boys Town. Larry King was always involved. They were taken to sex parties uh, at the GOP convention. They uh, talked about traveling all over the place, including you know, places like Las Vegas, and uh, and Florida, New York, you name it, all over the place, right? And this kid Bonacci was amazing because he documented everything. What else? Missing money? Yeah, four forty million dollars or so. Larry King had uh, snagged from the Franklin Credit Union, but that wasn't the big problem. That was where the investigation began, but. You know, as the investigation got going, lots and lots of people began to hear about child sexual and physical abuse that was going on with people that were related to Larry King. And uh, there was a guy, actually, another state senator, his name was Ernie Chambers, another state senator from Nebraska, actually was one of the guys that, that, that had initially helped to start the Franklin Credit Union back in the late 60s. He came forward and said that he had received numerous reports that he gave credence to that instances of, of child abuse were linked to this scandal. So as a result of all this stuff, the, the, um, there was this investigation that was launched. And DeCamp was a big part of it, actually. He released this thing. I, you know, we didn't have a chance to talk about it, but there was a, a piece of paper, actually, it was called the DeCamp Memo, and he was the first one to actually write it in print and say, well, this is what is coming out of this investigation. And again, it, it upset everybody. Everyone you know, said what a bad guy he was, but uh, you know, 
the hindsight that we have now, we know that everything that John DeCampis said has been has been proven to be true. And these guys are as dirty as they come. And they're walking around on the street. Many of them. You know how many people have died that are that, that are related to the Franklin case, the Franklin Credit Union disaster? It's like 16 or 17 people, you know? This kid, Troy Bonner, who years later, I think in, in, maybe five or six years ago, in the year 2000, you got to remember, this was going down in 1988, right? In 2000, Troy Bonner, I think it was the year 2000, but it wasn't, it was close to that if it wasn't 2000. Troy Bonner was in New Mexico, if I remember right, or, or Arizona, ran into the emergency room of a hospital with a copy of John DeCamp's book in his hand, screaming, they're going to kill me because of this book. And they put him in, in a room and gave him some sedatives and calmed him down and, in the, and didn't listen to a word he said. And in the morning they came back and he was sitting in a chair bleeding from the mouth and the nose and he was dead. And there are a bunch of others. And the message is, you know, apparently, some people will go to any lengths, I guess, to, to, to not let this information, you know, be told. So, I don't know. I'm just sort of paging through my notes here. And, uh, you know, there was a... There was a um, as this investigation was going on, there was a lot of concern about the legitimacy of the investigation. You know, think of all the famous investigations. Look at 9-11, for Christ's sake, right? So you know, basically, when the government tells you that they're going to initiate, you know, an independent investigation or a commission uh, to find out what happened with something, well, you can pretty much bet that the job of the commission is to make sure that the truth never gets past the door. I mean, that's, there's plenty of historical precedent for that. So that shouldn't surprise anybody. The same thing happened, or there was concern about the same thing happening in the Franklin case. Because the, the, the Franklin committee that was undertaken by the legislature of Nebraska, you know, had ten people on it. And there were a lot of people that left. There were five people that left uh, shortly after the, after the probe began. And so there was a whole lot of controversy from day one about this whole thing because, I mean, really prominent people are involved in this, right? It goes all the way to the White House because these guys were were running their their boys, their call boys, at the White House when Reagan and Bush were there. So, and that's on the Washington Times uh, headline. And I've got a picture of it, okay? So... Anyway, the investigation began. There was a guy named Jerry Lowe. The, the, the Franklin Committee hired this guy named Jerry Lowe. And he was a cop. He was a former cop in Nebraska. And he was considered the lead investigator. And so, back in 89, I guess, they got the first evaluation, uh, or they were able to evaluate for the first time the results of Lowe's investigation. And this guy painted a picture of, uh, you know, just a just a tangled web of power and money and sex and 
bureaucracy, and he talked about, uh, you know, negligence by the law agencies involved and all this sort of thing. And this was in February of 1989. Now, he continued to report, and he continued sending stuff to the committee for months after that, and his investigation deepened. He reported on King's, uh, Larry King's acquaintances. Anyway, at the same time that this guy Lowe was, conducting, was doing his investigation, the police department, they were wrapping up their investigations. And, of course, their investigations said at this point, uh, you know, there was no substance to any of the allegations and that they were basically to the end of the, in, uh, the investigation and that there was nothing uh, other than, you know, yeah, there was, there was some money, economic law-breaking, apparently, that had gone on at, at Franklin, but they basically said that they found no evidence of any of this other stuff, right? Now, there's another guy who was attorney general at the time. His name was Robert Spire, and he had been conducting, uh, conducting an investigation on Larry King and other people since uh, 88. And uh, Spire had gotten reports from the, uh, from the Foster Care Review Board, and the reports were a bunch of different testimony taken by the Foster Care Review Board from child victims and witnesses. And the people at the Foster Care Review Board assumed that Spire would take the allegations from the children's testimony seriously. But when they met later in December of 88, they found out that Spire had not done anything about it, basically. And so, so the Attorney General and the police probe basically concluded that uh, there was nothing going on, there was no need to investigate anything further. But they totally con you know, butted heads against this guy, Jerry Lowe, who was doing the investigation for the Franklin Committee. So, um, well, look, we'll come back and I'll tell you a little bit more about this. I want to tell you who Lauren Schmidt was, another senator. But in the meantime, uh, I need to take a break and we'll come back in just a few minutes, okay? Uh, let's see. This is a song called Tuesday, September 15th, 2005. It's Mike Hagan, you listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. We'll be back in just a minute.
signed your contract So just wait and let this time heal It's not easy, I know But you'll feel your heart grow Once you find that this love is real Tuesday, September 15th, 2005. That's Ben Boatwright. And this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. I'm supposed to read a promotion here. It's not really a promotion. It's just sort of a news piece to tell you all that we bought our new transmitter. And I can't find the actual piece of paper that says the details. But the transmitter was actually purchased. And uh, that's big news. Now we just have to get the facility ready out there by the tower and get it installed. But I think we'll be up and running in the next couple, three months with the new transmitter and should be beaming the signal out stronger and farther and faster and harder than ever before. All right? Okay, uh, it is Mike and it is Radio Orbit. We had John DeCamp for the first hour of the program and I'm trying to do a little bit of a synopsis myself of some of the other details uh, that were involved in the Franklin story. Franklin Credit Union, Omaha, Nebraska, uh, the late 80s, part of the whole SNL scandal. It was all tied together. Neil Bush, of course, if you remember, uh, involved deeply in that whole deal. I was in Denver, uh, just getting to Denver, as a matter of fact, in 88, 89, when Silverado and all that stuff was going down. Of course, Neil Bush never held accountable for any of the stuff that he was involved in back then, but... That's no, that, you know, it's not just to pick on the bushes. I mean, this is this, you know, just sort of endemic uh, throughout the whole situation. You know, we got all kinds of people like that. Somebody wrote on the on the board here in the chat room. You know, it seems like a lot of Republicans. Is it a bipartisan deal? I assure you, it is. It has nothing to do with political affiliations. 
has to do with the heart. All right, so uh, who else? Lauren Schmidt. Schmidt told the committee that uh, they were going to change the tack a little bit and start trying to find the money, try to follow the money. And she also said that there wasn't a whole lot of evidence concerning abuse allegations. And her announcement sort of took some of the committee members by surprise, and they lost a number of them. This is when the committee went from ten members to five members relatively quickly. But at the same time when Gary Caradori was hired, basically. And although uh, Lauren Schmidt was sort of following the money trail, supposedly, uh, Gary Caradori decided that he was going to go in search of victims and witnesses. He wanted to talk to the young people. Right, and uh, so he did that, and he interviewed hours and hours and hours of these young people. Four of them, as a matter of fact, Paul Bonacci, who John McCamp mentioned, who he eventually won a million dollar judgment for. Paul Bonacci, uh, Alicia Owen, Troy Bonner, and Danny King, and uh, the interviews with those four young people pretty much put everything together for Caradori, where a lot of other things had sort of run out uh, into dead ends. And everything connected back to the Franklin Credit Union, back to Larry King, and to prominent businessmen and uh, other patriarchs in the the local community there. All right, um, Alicia Owen, her testimony, something else. You should check it out. Go on the web and find it, all right? Same thing with all of these kids. Read their testimony. It's too bad we can't see the videotape of their uh, when they were interviewed while that stuff has been disappeared, you know, the way that stuff works. Anyway, shortly after New Year, this is when the DeCamp memo comes out. Uh, it basically became sort of known infamously as the DeCamp memo. But John DeCamp publicly named for the first time all the central characters that were being investigated in response to this abuse and uh, molestation allegations. And John DeCamp, he said the same thing the whole time. He basically said that if you turn a blind eye to this, uh, it's the only way you're not going to see what's going on. He named Larry King, Alan Bear, who I mentioned, Harold Anderson, Peter uh, Citrone, and again, the former Omaha police chief, Robert Wadman. And uh, the memo basically said that these were the central figures in some sort of coordinated program of child abuse. Coordinated program. All right? Something that's actually institutionalized. Drug abuse, all kinds of things, right? But anyway, it was obvious that these people had violated the positions of trust that they'd been given in the public domain. And DeCamp's memo just made a whole bunch of people really upset. And there were others that were sort of empowered by it, but there was a big clash that sort of arose between the two sides. And the Omaha World Herald and the papers in town uh, came down pretty hard against John DeCamp. Interestingly, not against the information that he was putting out there, but against him as an individual. That's usually, you know, that's that's one of the common... Uh, defenses attack the messenger if you can't attack the message right 
So anyway, uh, this was, what, 1990 by now, all right? 1990, I think, is when Larry King, I think he gets his in 1990, if I remember correctly. And that's when Gary Corridori goes to Chicago and uh, meets with Rusty Nelson and thinks that he can get the... Uh, the photographs and the, the the evidence that he needs, sort of the smoking gun, to put this whole thing to rest. And next thing you know, he's dead. His his plane exploded, and he and his son were killed on the way home from Chicago after he had made a phone call uh, to uh, the senator who I mentioned before. Anyway, Caradori ends up dead, and. Uh, when he died, that sent a total shockwave through those that were close to the Franklin case and to the investigation. Most of the people that were involved thought that it was no accident. There were ideas that, you know, the people that were at the at the root of this would not stop at anything, you know, that they would do anything to block further investigation into this into the story. And so Troy Bonner and Danny King both recanted their testimony. They both uh, basically claimed that Caradori had fed them answers while they were conducting the videotape uh, interviews. Turns out that that eventually, the truth of that came out too, because Troy Bonner's dead now, I told you that. But uh, he, he ended up talking to John DeCamp after the fact and saying, no, you know, of course all this stuff is true, but we're just scared to death. Everyone thought they were going to get killed. Anyway, uh, Caradori died, and uh, then Danny King and Troy Bonner recanted, and it left the Franklin Committee and the prosecutor sort of uh, in a difficult position. Uh, FBI officers issued subpoenas. They, they, they took all of Caradori's records. By the time it was said and done, uh, the people on the prosecution side of Franklin had lost all kinds of records, all kinds of valuable data, and the testimony that they needed for the case. The grand jury finally issued the report in the uh, middle of 1990. It was 12 days after Gary Caradori, was, uh, uh, Caradori died. And believe it or not, the grand jury testified that the entire case was, quote-unquote, a carefully crafted hoax. And it was a 42-page report. It basically disregarded the facts surrounding the investigation as a whole. And uh, anyway, it was an absolute shame and a disgrace to this country, to the children who've been harmed in this whole situation and to the state of Nebraska. Anyway, the report basically said that Larry King had used money and had uh, uh, used other things, gifts and whatnot, to entice young men into sexual relationships. But the report concluded that these men were of consensual age. And they basically said that they would leave the financial investigation in the hands of another association. I forget exactly who. Uh, Alan Bear, who I told you about, this is the guy that uh, was the merchandising magnate, right? They found him guilty of pandering, and they handed down an indictment uh, for him, this millionaire, uh, but they concluded also that none of his sexual activities were related to the Franklin case. Okay. What else? Uh, now, here's where it really gets unbelievable. 
not only were Bear and uh, Citron's indictments a joke, there were more indictments that were handed down, but these are the unbelievable ones. One to Alicia Owen, the other to Paul Bonacci. The grand jury concluded that both these two, uh, Alicia and Paul Bonacci, had lied that they would be tried under charges of perjury. you believe it? That's the truth. That's what actually happened. And they went to jail. And uh, it's unbelievable. The Omaha World Herald actually published an article that was uh, actually got down all over John DeCamp's civil suit that he filed eventually on the, on the part of Bonacci. And in that article, the Catholic Archdiocese attorney, the guy's name was Hortz, uh, he claimed he had looked into the allegations surrounding the diocese and said they are absolutely frivolous. They were made without any investigation, blah, 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 right? Anyway, um, John DeCamp continued to get testimony and evidence that would try to help him fight for Paul Bonacci, and Paul Bonacci was in jail. And uh, the civil suit sort of lagged on, and both the kids stuck to their stories. And it took eight more years until 1999. And in 1999, uh, DeCamp finally won the judgment uh, for Paul Bonacci against Larry King. And then you got the whole story of Johnny Gosh that's thrown in. You know, the story of Johnny Gosh. You know, John and I talked about this off, off the air, and we can talk about it on uh, maybe the next occasion that we talk. But he's pretty convinced that Johnny Gosh is Jeff Gannon or James Gookert or whoever the hell that uh, fake reporter who was spending a lot of time in the White House was earlier this year. Remember that story, people? Jeff Gannon. Remember there was a guy in the White House press corps who... Uh, had fake credentials, but uh, was getting preferential treatment at press conferences and this sort of thing. And it turns out that he had spent a lot of time at the White House over the last year or so, overnight sometimes. Well, John DeCamp thinks that Jeff Gannon is Johnny Gosh. And there are a lot of other people that think that too, including, uh, including Johnny Gosh's mother, Noreen Gosh, another amazing woman who's lived through hell since 1982, since her son was kidnapped, you know, 23 years ago. <sighs> Paul Bonacci, that's, you know, that's the whole story. That's the, the Johnny Gosh connection. Paul Bonacci had written a story uh, in his journal about how he had participated in, in the kidnap of another boy. And John told, you know, a little bit of this story in the first hour. And he gave details of... Uh, you know, this particular event, where it happened, when it happened. And so when DeCamp read that, he was able to go to Des Moines and look in the time frame that was spoken of. And sure enough, there was a huge story in Des Moines at the time of this young man. His name was Johnny Gosh, G-O-S-C-H, who had been kidnapped. And, you know, everyone was trying to find him. Well, he never did find him. Maybe they found him. Maybe maybe uh, he actually has corresponded with his mother since then. It's just they've never been able to. He's frightened to death, basically. He always says, I can't talk to you. I can't see you, whatever. They'll kill me, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the story that Paul Bonacci wrote in his 
diaries perfectly matched the Johnny Gosh abduction story. And there was no way that he would have known the details that he knew had he not been present. He also knew details about Johnny Gosh's body. He was able to identify certain uh, birthmarks that would not have been known otherwise. So that was one of the things that really got John DeCamp to believe that Paul Bonacci was telling the truth because he was able to uh, to link all this stuff back from, from his diaries, including that party uh, at the South Fork Ranch during the 88 Republican National Convention. So, and who knows, maybe Johnny Gosh was there too, right? But Jeff Gannon, this is the guy uh, who had been publicly ousted you know, uh, when investigators found out that this guy, uh, Jeff Gannon, had been to the White House many times, and uh, he'd made dozens of trips, actually. And the the story of, of Jeff Gannon was just beginning at that point. People just thought, well, he was a, just a con artist that got in the press corps. But no, they also found out that he'd been serving the Washington, D.C. community as a homosexual uh, male prostitute. Had his own website and everything, you know. Described himself and his, you know, what he, what he, what he do, do for you and all that. And so, after this revelation that he was a male prostitute came out, then a lot of people that are familiar with the Franklin case uh, began to get curious about him, and some people made some observations of pictures that had been collected from. Gannon's website that showed him with a birthmark that uh, that seemed to be identical uh, to one of Johnny Gosh's, and so people immediately began to uh, talk about a theory where these two were one and the same. Age-wise, they would be about the same age now. Anyway, Gannon was in the media spotlight for a while, if you remember, right? Who knows? Uh, but Jeff Gannon, the only way you could do it would be DNA, I guess. And as a matter of fact, he's been approached. They, you know, since then, Jeff Gannon has been approached by Noreen Gosh, and said, "Do a blood test." And uh, Gannon has either declined or backed out of it somehow. Um, you know, before uh, before he actually did the test. Paul um, Bonacci talked about Bohemian Grove too. Mantwin Bard makes that note up on the. Uh, on the chat room board. And DeCamp did a lot of investigation into uh, Bohemian Grove as well. It's a whole other story, you know. I've been there, as a matter of fact. I drove through there two weeks after the party ended in late August one year. I think it was 1999, maybe. I forget. I was living in Denver at the time. What a creepy place, man, let me tell you. I was there when it was abandoned. You can actually go through it. You can actually drive through it. Well, I don't know if you're supposed to or not, but I did. You know, after the Johnny Gosh thing comes out, then DeCamp basically says, forget it. Talks to Colby. Says, what the hell am I supposed to do? Colby says, run away. And if you're going to do anything, write a book to make sure you get the story out there. That way you won't be, you know, in any more danger because if you say what you know well then you've already said what you know so it really doesn't do any good to knock you off or something in fact it just gives more credence to your story perhaps so what they did was exactly that um, wrote the book and then 
as was expected, DeCamp was demonized, uh, marginalized, and, um, you know, discredited in every way possible. Lost the great majority of his income stream. I mean, John DeCamp went through a really difficult time when this thing was originally breaking. So, uh, he, 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 he has been a really courageous and strong figure throughout this whole thing. So, he wrote the book. Just like Bill Colby told him to do. You know, when William Colby ended up dead too. He ended up dead. They fished him out of a little, out of his lake. Supposedly went canoeing in the middle of the night. <laughs> so, who's to say? But it is an amazing story, and enough of it is uh, in the public record now. Enough of it is, you know, documented that we know that there are operating in this country elite pedophile gangs uh, that are organized and that use children for lots of things, uh, for drug running, for sex slaves. There's even talk of ritual sacrifice, stuff that's so uh, over the top that you don't even want to go there. Um, but if you do want to go there and find out, I suggest you get a copy of the Franklin cover-up. I haven't even mentioned his website, but uh, the uh, information about the book can be found at www.franklincase.org. Franklincase.org. You know, I, I actually got copies of the judgment from the court that found in favor of Bonacci. John sent me some of the some of the paper copies of the paperwork so I knew exactly what I was talking about with regard to the court cases. And it's remarkable because the information that comes out in the Bonacci case, the court case itself, is absolutely and you know verifiably now obvious and it implicates so many people and not just people but institutions you know and this is the problem this is this is the real problem is that this is not a few bad apples that's the way it's always sold you know that's the way it's always sold most of the time you never even find out about the real bad dudes. You know, anytime they pick up somebody for pedophile charges or this or that, it's usually someone of a lower stature in the community. And they use those people as examples and make it look like, you know, there's an effort being made to uh, to protect the children. When in essence the great majority of the abuse is happening at levels that are uh, in, in quote-unquote, respectable areas of society. You know, leaders of institutions. You know, police chiefs, psychiatrists, doctors, teachers, principals, clergy, government and business bigwigs. Right? This is the problem. All right, it's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. It's just about 1 a.m. now on, what is it, December the 5th. December the 5th. And uh, 
play another song here from Ben Boatwright. Come back and chat a little bit more with you in a minute, okay? It's Mike, you listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN, Columbia.
All right, that's a song called Back Around. One more time, Ben Boatwright. You listen to Mike Hagan. KOPN Columbia, this is Radio Orbit, just a few minutes after 1 a.m. now on December 5th. And we were speaking with former state senator of Nebraska, John DeCamp, during the first hour of the program. I've been sort of talking a little bit more about his book and the information revealed by him over the last 20 years almost now. The book is called The Franklin Cover-Up. You can find information about it at franklincase.org. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Franklin case and some of the things related to it before I move on, and then we'll sort of, uh, I don't know, we'll do some other things with the program, okay? All right. Uh, 92, John DeCamp writes the book. Uh, in 93, this is interesting, actually, um, the media here in the U.S. just wouldn't touch this thing with a 10-foot pole. All right, absolutely like it was the plague. So DeCamp had no luck getting any of our wonderful free press to cover uh, an important story like this. That tells you something a little bit about the press and who's running them. But there was a little outfit in um, England called the Yorkshire Television Group. And in 1993, they sent a team to Omaha to investigate the Franklin case. And uh, they spent nearly a, a year there, I don't know, nine months or something there. And they collected a bunch of footage and they did all kinds of interviews with people like John DeCamp and with Paul Bonacci and with Troy Bonner and all these kids. And uh, they had a documentary that they thought was going to win awards, basically. They spent a half a million bucks making the production, and it was called Conspiracy of Silence. And John and other people involved in the case really thought that this was going to be the thing that broke the silence on the case. Interestingly, in May of 1994, when this documentary was supposed to be aired on the Discovery Channel, if I remember correctly, it turns out that uh, it had been pulled at the last mo- at the last moment, and an unknown buyer bought the rights and all the copies of the program, reimbursed Yorkshire Television for the production costs, who knows what else, and uh, destroyed all of them. And Congress threatened a bunch of uh, restrictive legislation on the cable industry. Uh, in the midst of this whole thing. Well, it turns out, though, that not all the copies of that tape, of that production, that documentary, were destroyed. And if you want to watch it yourself, you can do it. All right? And I suggest you do. All right? It's called Conspiracy of Silence. If you want to watch it, you can just uh, go to my website. Go to MikeHagan.com page down to you see the information about John DeCamp and there's a little link there that says video and uh, I'd appreciate if somebody can put that link up on the chat page as well and it should be posted in the forum as well anyway Conspiracy of Silence it's a one hour documentary and it lays it out okay breaks the case it's done now you gotta just figure out what the hell we're supposed to do about the situation we're in alright
Anyway, it's a never-ending story, the whole Franklin cover-up, and it is uh, one that's as relevant today as it was in 1988. We got all kinds of other people involved. I didn't get to talk about Ted Gunderson at all. Uh, Ted Gunderson was a CIA guy who was sent to discredit John DeCamp and uh, became friends with him and actually actually realized that DeCamp was the one that was actually telling the truth. And, uh, of course, Gunderson eventually then became ostracized and became, you know, considered a pariah among his ilk. Uh, but he and uh, John DeCamp are still friends, I think. We talked about Gary Caradori. Hunter S. Thompson. We didn't talk about Hunter Thompson. I mentioned Colin Ross, but he's tied into this whole thing. Cardinal Ratzinger. It turns out that uh, in 1999, John DeCamp went to the Vatican and told, because he wanted to have an audience with the Pope, to tell him about what was happening in the American church. And uh, he wasn't allowed an audience with the Pope, but he was allowed an audience with another person. And guess who that was? Joseph Ratzinger. It turned out that he met with Ratzinger in, like, 1999. And guess what? Joseph Ratzinger told him, yeah, we know. And he didn't deny it, and he didn't try to make excuses. He said, we know, it's a huge problem, but the American church, the hierarchy of the American church won't listen to Rome. And they say they want to deal with it their own way, and blah, blah, blah. Next, next thing you know, he's the Pope. I mean, I don't know, you know, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know. Who else is in this in this story? Oklahoma City bombing. That ties into this. The whole McVeigh story. Unbelievable how that ties in. But I'm not going to go into that right now. Uh, D. Corydon Hammond. There's a piece that I put up on the web. I believe that it occurred in 1998. It is, uh, you know, and for people who are out there trying to figure out what's happening in ritual abuse cases and this sort of thing. This is a hallmark piece of... uh, Actually, it was a speech. It's called the Greenbaum speech. And it was was done in 1998, I believe, by a doctor by the name of D. Corydon Hammond. And... The Greenbaum speech is another one of these things that, if if you uh, if you take the time and read it, and uh, you know with an open mind, you'll see pretty clearly the level of of uh, of trouble that we're in with regard to this with regard to this stuff. There is um, I'll read a little bit of it to you here, okay. Actually, I won't read. I, I, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about D. Cord and Hammond, Dr. Hammond, first of all. All right, listen to this guy. All right, uh, this is background information. Okay, for Dr. Cord and Hammond, he has a bachelor's and a master's and a Ph.D. in counseling psychology from the University of Utah. He is a diplomat in clinical hypnosis for the American Board of Psychological Hypnosis, uh, a diplomat in sex therapy for the American Board of Sexology, 
clinical supervisor and board examiner for the American Board of Sexology, diplomat in marital and sex therapy, American Board of Family Psychology, licensed psychologist, licensed marital therapist, licensed family therapist in the state of Utah. He was the research assistant professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation at the Utah School of Medicine, director and founder of the Sex and Marriage Therapy Clinic in the University of Utah. He was adjunct associate professor of educational psychology, University of Utah, editor of the American Journal of Clinical Hypnosis, advising editor and founding member of the editorial board of the Ericksonian Monograph, referee of the Journal of Abnormal Psychology, uh, won the 1989 Presidential Award of Merit for the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis, uh, 1990 Urban Sector Award for the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis, and at the time was the president of uh, the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis. Right? I mean, this is a guy that had been well, well suited to make the comments that he makes in the Greenbaum speech. So uh, that's up on the web as well. All right. So if you'd like to go to my site, either way, you can link to the video Conspiracy of Silence. You can link over to John DeCamp's site and get a look at the book. Uh, you can get over to the Greenbaum speech from D.C. Hammond. Now that's not actually up on my front page. You'd have to go over to the forum um, and click on the link that says the Franklin cover-up. I posted it on the thread uh, there about the Franklin cover-up, the story about, uh, well, what, what eventually came to be known as the Greenbaum speech. And it is remarkable. So, all right, it's about 1.15. And I think I'll do one more thing here. I'll do one more thing here with regard to the Franklin stuff and then and then we'll move on okay and I've got a little piece of uh, not really poetry I guess it's um, some lyrics from a from a from a song or at least a clip from a song from Leonard Cohen the song was actually called The Story of Isaac and the album is called songs from a room but I'm just going to read a little bit of it over this Ben Boatwright piece here if you don't mind you who build these altars now to sacrifice these children you must not do it anymore a scheme is not a vision and you never have been tempted by a demon or a god you who stand above them now your hatchets blunt and bloody you were not there before when I lay upon a mountain and my father's hand was trembling with the beauty of the word.
Another nice song there from Ben Boatwright. That one's called Standing, Listening, Waiting. And before that, you heard More Than One Way to Forget How to Remember. That was a short little piece that I read that Leonard Cohen text over. All right, it's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, about 1.20 in the AM now on the 5th of December. Let's see, what are we going to do? Well, say hello, first of all. Everybody listening through the regular airwaves, traditionally, or over the web, whether you listen to the show live or otherwise. We do stream the show live every Monday night, right now, streaming via CosmicWavesRadio.com on the web. And we also archive the programs up there on the website at www.MikeHagan.com. And so a lot of you listen after the fact as well. So hello to everybody, regardless of how we're getting to you. All right. Thanks to everybody who's been a part of it. Thanks to Larry, the web wizard, as always, doing wonderful stuff for us on the website. Snick on over there, and um, Larry's always got something fun for you.
all right? To the people out there that are sending art and music and poetry, thank you. The music we heard tonight is from an artist who, you know, took the time and got a CD to me, and I liked it and worked out really well with the topic tonight. So uh, do the same thing. I love to hear the music and love to share it with other people. Okay, same thing with art, visual art, poetry, whatever. All right, it's great, and we love it. So send as much as you like. And one more time, thanks to Larry for putting it all together on the web. Okay, check it out. Let us know what you think. www.mikehagan.com. You'll have access to everything we're doing. All right, so take a look and see and let me know what you think. Okay, the chat room is up and active. I love it. Hi, you guys. How's everyone doing over there? The forum, lots of interesting topics being discussed over there every day now. And I encourage guests as well as listeners to get involved and join us in the chat and the forum. So uh, thanks to everybody who's out there. All right. Special announcements. What did I want to say? National AIDS Day, whether you knew it or not, is actually today. Well, it was yesterday on Monday. And um, all I'll say about that is listen to the uh, the program that I did. Well, I didn't really do a whole program, with that, but I aired an interview that I taped with him, Jose Yacaman, Dr. Miguel Jose Yacaman the wonderful uh, professor down at the University of Texas at Austin doing work with silver nanoparticles and the AIDS virus. Basically has figured out a way to kill the AIDS virus with silver. And I'm not sure when the actual broadcast of that was, but it was worth listening to, okay? Dr. Jose Miguel Yacaman. And you can listen to that in honor of National AIDS Day, okay? Also, I want to congratulate my friend and my old partner Tommy Flanagan out there in Colorado just uh, uh, signed Big Head Todd and the Monsters uh, to his management uh, outfit. And that's great news for me because I love Big Head Todd and they were friends of ours uh, back in the Colorado days and so I'll probably get permission to play some of their music and we can feature Todd and uh, the gang during a show sometime next year probably. Great music from Big Head Todd and the Monsters. Rock and roll from Colorado. And congratulations to my friend Tom for uh, putting together uh, something great with them. All right, let's see. What else did I want to tell you about? Well, I should give you the email address here. If anybody, uh, if anybody wants to send me any information after the program or during the week anytime, you can do that via email at orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, orbitradio at AOL.com. One more time on the web at MikeHagan, H-A-G-A-N.com. And let's see, before we take a break here, why don't I tell you about some upcoming guests that are going to be on the program. And then we'll come back and we'll do space weather and maybe look at the news a little bit. I'll peek in the chat room if anybody has any questions or comments. We can talk about that stuff. And before you know it, we'll be out of here, okay? All right, so uh, let's see. What's been going on? We had Lewis Greenberg last week. We had uh, John DeCamp tonight. Next week, the 11th of December, Jack Cole, the executive director of LEAP, L-E-A-P, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. All right? An intelligent, reasonable position on drugs, drug law, drug policy. We'll hear it from Jack Cole next week. That'll be at 11 o'clock. Jack will be with us again right at the beginning of the program. All right. uh, let's see. On the 18th, the week after, Jack Cole will have uh, Jay Widener back on the program. 
And we'll probably have Rick Levine on for just a brief period during that show as well. Uh, Rick's going to be on the program for the first of the year, the New Year's show. Rick Levine will be doing that with me, and we'll talk about astrology and what he sees for 2007 and what 2006 looks like in the rear view right now. So that's coming up. What else? Uh, on Christmas, we've got Jan Irvin and his partner, Andrew U- uh, And I can never say it. You know, I better get it right before the 25th gets here. Andrew Rubiat, uh, the co-authors of Astrotheology and Shamanism, and the two guys that put together the Pharmacratic Inquisition, another amazing video that's out there on the web that, uh, that everyone should have in their collection. The Pharmacratic Inquisition. Check it out. All right, so we'll have... Andrew and Jan on the 25th of December, and we're going to talk about uh, Christmas traditions. Let's see. Like I said, Rick Levine on the first of the year, the New Year's show. Stephen Buhner. I actually uh, interviewed Stephen on Saturday morning, this last Saturday, and we had a nice conversation, and I'll do a little edit on that, and I'll air that for you on the 8th of January, along with some other special stuff, I imagine. Um... Well, we got Star and Michael coming up in the middle of January. I spoke with Dennis. I had a nice conversation with Dennis uh, via email over the last few days. He's on his way back to Hawaii in January. Going to be teaching a class out there that's called Plants and Human Affairs. And he teaches it. He's been doing it for the last few years, I think. But he teaches it with Kat Harrison McKenna. Uh, Terrence's former uh, wife and partner. And that's going to be a remarkable thing. It's like a 12-day, you know, super intense workshop. Uh, Some of it in the classroom, some of it in the jungle. But plants and human affairs, just imagine it. Dennis McKenna basically covers everything you can imagine, right? And uh, so anyway, Dennis is going to come back on the program sometime after the first of the year. We'll probably do it in February or March. And uh, we were talking actually on online about, <coughs> pardon me, um, well, we were talking about the earth and nature, and we were also talking about technology, and the conversation sort of went like this. We, we both agreed that it seems that sort of two camps are sort of polarizing. There's the, the get back to nature camp, You know, save the earth, resist technology, deny technology. Uh, There's that crowd. And then there's the other crowd. Then there's the screw the earth crowd. You know, place all the money on technology and hope that technology can bail us out of the, the hole that we've dug. And basically we sort of said, well, what we need is the synthesis between those two. We need the earth, obviously, and we need to reestablish, for those of us who have, uh, who've had it broken, the reestablishment of the connection between the human being and the earth, the natural world from which you come and from which you will go, or to which you will go, and upon which you rely for life, air, food, sustenance, light, water, and the technological world, which is one that we are thrust into, whether we like it or not. 
So we're going to talk a little bit about that, about somehow, you know, imagining a future, a symbiotic future of human being, earth values, and technology. So that's coming up with Dennis McKenna in a couple months, and we'll have plenty of time for him and I to get that together and make that a real nice program. Anyway, he appreciates all the uh, uh, correspondence, too, that he gets through me and everybody who sends stuff to me. I always will uh, be glad to share it with the guests, all right? Okay, so uh, just about the bottom of the hour here. Let's play another song from Ben. Come back, I'll do Space Weather, and we'll talk a little bit about the news and um, go from there, okay? This one is called Homeless. Back in just a few minutes. It's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM.
have it. Uh, it's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. Let me take care of a little bit of business here. All right, tune in at 6 p.m. tonight, actually, Tuesday evening, for Evening Edition, as the nuclear power industry gears up for a long-hoped-for revival. Indigenous people are organizing to stop the mining of uranium on their land. Join host Mark Heim as he interviews Alice Slater of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. They'll be discussing the recent Indigenous World Uranium Summit, which Slater attended, as well as the connections between nuclear power and nuclear weapons proliferation. As always, Mark will invite your questions and comments from all perspectives. Don't miss it. Another exciting evening edition coming your way tonight, Tuesday, 6 p.m. on KOPN 89.5 FM. All right? All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. KOPN Columbia. Let's do space weather real fast here. See what's happening up there in the skies above your heads. As a matter of fact, it's real cool. Full moon tonight. And according to folklore, they actually call the full moon tonight the long night's moon. There's lots of names, you know, uh, for the full moons of many of the months. Some of them have multiple names. But one of the things they call the December full moon is the long night's moon. And, of course, it gets a name from the long nights of December. And there's also something special about it, a little bit more uh, atypical than normal. The, the, the moon tonight, and you can go out and check it out right now, will travel really high in the sky. It'll go almost almost right above your head, almost. Um, and it doesn't do that very often. Let's go outside and take a look. In Columbia right now, actually, there's a whole lot of snow on the ground and on the rooftops. And I'm up on the, what, second or third floor of this building here, and I'm looking out on the roof, and I can see the snow, and it's very bright outside right now. we get all the snow on the ground and on the rooftops, and then a bright moon well above our heads up there. So it's really pretty outside. Cold is all get out, though, in the last few days as well. All right, what else is happening here? Well, there was a little report that came out about fireballs. You know, we've had a lot of meteor showers over the last couple months. People have been reporting uh, all kinds of things streaking across the sky. So this guy, uh, Bill Cook from Marshall Space Flight, used a computer to model the number of fireballs that... Uh, are as bright, for example, as Venus, and how, how often that happens uh, on a daily basis. It turns out that, according to this guy's calculations, you get a fireball as bright as Venus appearing in the sky somewhere on Earth more than 100 times every day. And you get fireballs as bright as a quarter moon that occur once every 10 days somewhere on the planet. Now, you get a fireball as bright as a full moon once every five months. That's pretty interesting, actually. That's pretty bright, man. You see something that looks like a full moon coming at you? Sheesh. I don't know. You say the most, uh, uh, most of them aren't even noticed. And uh, sort of just streak right on by without anybody ever even seeing them. And, of course, 70% of the planet is water. So, you know, who's going to see those? Except our friends out there in the ocean. All right, near-Earth asteroids. As I told Larry the other day, he, he laughed uh, because he sent me a note and said, you know, 
on December 5th, 2006, there were 836 known potentially hazardous asteroids. And he said, oh, that makes me feel good. And I said, well, it's not the known ones that we have to worry about. <laughs> and uh, I imagine there's more unknown than known, don't you think? What's happening? Uh, December 5th, we actually came sort of close to one today, 2006 WB. But it wasn't that close. Seven lunar distances, so a couple million miles. And another one coming up on uh, December 20th that they know about, this one, uh, 2004 XL14, and that's going to be even a little bit further away. So nothing that we know about uh, coming close to the planet anytime soon. All right, let's see. Um, let me check in the chat page here real fast. And uh, hmm, the Long Night's Moon. Yeah, Larry, that's a good name for a song, no doubt. All right, Space Weather, that's about it. Uh, as I said, full moon tonight, new moon two weeks from now. And in between, we'll have what they call the waning gibbous. It'll be a waning gibbous until it gets to be... Uh, a half moon, and then it becomes a waning crescent down to the point where you can't see it anymore, and then we get a new moon, and then we'll roll on back up to the full moon a month from now, 28 days as a matter of fact. seem to get a lot of full moons on Mondays. It's nice. New moon on Monday, full moon on Monday. That's why they call it Monday, you know, moon day. All right, what else is happening here? Let me see what's in the news. Echolocation. In early September, a 14-year-old kid with empty eye sockets strode on stage for the taping of the talk show Ellen. I'm not blind, he told the host to wild applause. I just can't see. The story seemed lifted from the pages of a comic book. At the age of three, Ben Underwood lost his eyes to retinal cancer. Three years later, he discovered that he could sense objects around him by making little clicking noises with his tongue and then listening for the echoes. Now he uses these clicks to find doorways and locate cars on the street. That's right, he navigates with sonar. Now this is interesting. I, I, um, I read about this kid earlier this year, and I posted something about it somewhere. I don't, I don't remember where. And I sent the story to Dr. Michael Heisen, who was astonished by it. Uh, essentially, this little boy does what bats and dolphins do. He makes a constant clicking sound with his tongue and with his mouth, or whatever, right? And uh, he's able to interpret the, you know, somehow, the vibrations of those sounds coming back where he can actually sense the environment around him. I mean, to the point where he can run down a hallway and turn, you know, at the end of the hallway, and then that sort of thing. It's very... Amazing, and people that witness it say that it's remarkable because you wouldn't really know that the kid had uh, no eyes. Literally, it's not he's blind; he doesn't even have any eyes. He has empty eye sockets. So, I mean, if you think about it, it's sort of strange. You know, you could do it probably. You know, it's. I mean, it's probably not that strange once you think about it. I mean, what we do when we speak, essentially, you know, is send out sound waves into the local environment. They move through the air, and then from my mouth, little noises that come out, they go into your ears, 
And in a way, that's the same thing. Uh, so I think that probably using your own voice and using the sounds that you make, you could probably get information back. Uh, you probably just would have to train yourself to do it. But at any rate, uh, think about a whistle. Think about when you whistle and it, and it, and it ricochets off objects and you can hear the echo. And that's basically what this is. They call it echolocation, right? The problem is how sensitive are you to the echoes that your voice or that your sounds make? So anyway, this kid's is very sensitive. And uh, it's amazing. So maybe it's one of these deals about, you know, the loss of one particular sense is compensated for in an extreme manner in other senses. Maybe that's... uh, one explanation for this sort of thing. But it's really cool, either way. All right, the sonar boy. <laughs> He's not a sideshow freak. He's a young man who's getting getting by just fine. All right, let's see. Oh, here's an interesting one. Thanks, Larry, for putting up these stories, by the way. This is from the Middle East Times. Robot to penetrate deep inside Cheops Pyramid. That's the Great Pyramid at Giza. Uh, for people not familiar with the official name. Uh, let's see, listen to this. A robot archaeologist is to be sent deep inside Egypt's largest pyramid in a bid to solve secrets revealed by a first foray more than four years ago, Antiquities Supremo Zawi Hawass said Thursday. Man, that's that's a red flag right there. If Hawass is involved in it, forget about it if you and me want to find out what's happening. And this is probably related to the, the so what was it, Gantenbrink, the guy that, uh, that Rudolf Gantenbrink that designed that little robot that crawled down the door uh, to, toward that quote-unquote doorway that wasn't really a doorway that Christopher Dunn and I spoke about when I interviewed Chris Dunn a few months ago. Anyway, listen to this. The new robot will be sent down very narrow passages in the so-called Queen's Chamber where the first robot was sent in 2002, said Hawass who heads Egypt's Supreme Council of Antiquities. God, it just gives you the creeps, doesn't it? Teams from Egypt and Singapore and a joint group from Britain and Hong Kong plan to insert the robot in February inside the Pyramid of Cheops at Giza, blah, blah, blah. Equipped with tiny cameras, the robot will be sent down the chamber's north and south passages in the hope of discovering what lies beyond two inner walls or doors revealed during the first robotic expedition in September 2002. Well, you know that they're not doors. They're some sort of electrodes. Christopher Dunn made that pretty clear in his work, I think. Uh, and pretty convincing, I think. Anyway, uh, looks like they're going to send another robot down there. Check out what's happening. And then tell us something else. Uh, NASA looks to a new frontier by building telescope on the moon. The most powerful radio telescope yet devised is to be built on the moon under plans being put together by NASA for its 2018 lunar mission. I'm not going to give that one any more of my time. 1,600-year-old Roman coffin found in London. A Roman coffin dating back some 1,600 years was recently discovered at the historic St. Martin in the Fields Church in London. What was inside? 
a headless skeleton. <laughs> yeah, that's what it says. Uh, archaeologists discovered a rare Roman sarcophagus containing a headless skeleton at the site of London's historic St. Martin in the Fields Church. The limestone coffin dates to about 410 A.D., and was 10 feet below the grounds of St. Martin in the Fields. You know, that was right around the time when things were getting really ugly. They had just killed Hypatia, and uh, the, the, the march of the patriarchy was on, and they were murdering and killing anybody who was going against the church at that time, and that was after Nicaea, you know, which was a big, a big deal. So, anyway, a, a really brutal and... Uh, an infamous time for the Christian tradition, the Catholic Church during this time. This was leading into the Dark Ages. Of course, Emmanuel Velikovsky and uh, Louis Greenberg, who we talked to last week, said the Dark Ages really didn't exist. It was the Dark Age of, of Greece. Anyway, who the hell knows? <laughs> but uh, anyway, this guy had sort of a Dark Age because somebody lopped off his head <laughs> and then threw him in a limestone coffin and, for whatever reason, stuck him underground in London. So, Trafalgar Square, you never know what you'll find. The find, <laughs> uh, the find has opened up an exciting new area of Roman London for study, said Tieran Nixon, director of the Museum of London Archaeology Service. That's almost as scary as the Zowie Hawass and the Supreme Antiquities Clown Show, whatever that is. This gives us an extraordinary glimpse of parts of London we hadn't seen before, particularly Roman London and Saxon London. What about the view it gives you down the guy's neck? <laughs> I mean, I don't get it. I mean, they find a, a headless skeleton, and this guy's talking about how it shows him glimpses of, of London that he hadn't seen before. I don't know. Maybe it's getting to that time in the show where I'm just getting silly and not making a whole lot of sense anymore. Uh, the myth of the flat earth. I'm not going to talk about that too much. There's a story about it, though, but we did a program on it a couple months ago. You might check that out with Kevin and Matthew Taylor. They wrote a book called uh, Land with No Horizon. Land of No Horizon, I think. Uh, incredible photos. The surface of the sun. Yes. Yes. For sure. Guys like Ken Stedman have been trying to tell you that for 10 years. Ah, look at the sun. Look at the sun. It's amazing. It is amazing. And it's great that we have the opportunity to look at it the way we can now. Uh, let's see. There's another story about the Antikythera device. We talked about this with Walter Cruttenden a couple times. This is that old 2,000-year-old clockwork machine whose remains were retrieved from a shipwreck more than a hundred years ago, it turns out to be this celestial supercomputer somewhere back in the ancient world. Stunned scientists, the article says, say the so-called Antikythera mechanism could predict the ballet of the sun and moon over decades and calculate a lunar anomaly. Um, this is an article from Cosmos magazine, and there's a great uh, in-depth piece in New Scientist about it this week. But this is a remarkable thing. And Walter talked about it last year on the air. Anybody who's familiar with this device knew that when they found it, 
uh, something really strange was going on. I mean, this is something that was built in Greece, supposedly, uh, over 2,000 years ago, before the time of Christ, you know, before the Common Era. And it is a design that is super sophisticated. It has gears and, uh, you know, an amazing mechanism that looks like it would have to be built by an extremely sophisticated machinist. I mean, this looks like something that Royal Raymond Rife would build, you know. Anyway, it was found in 1901, and uh, bottom line is it shows that whoever built this thing had a tremendous amount of technical sophistication. Uh, it's really clear when you look at it. There are 29-some gear wheels that all fit together perfectly, and they make some sort of an astronomical calendar. People have been talking about it for a long time, about what it's actually uh, capable of doing, but it turns out that the more they get to know about it, uh, it's a very sophisticated calendrical device that's capable of predicting uh, all kinds of different celestial cycles. And it's an amazing little piece of machinery that, uh, that our ancestors put together 2,000 years ago. Reminds me of that book by uh, Manuel... Oh, what's his last name? Delanda. Manuel Delanda. It's called A Thousand Years of Nonlinear History. Well, now we should change the title to 2,000 Years. But uh, history is nonlinear. We're taught that it's linear. You know, that, uh, you know, that we used to be stupid apes, and now we're smart talking monkeys. Well, there are a lot of things that happen in between, ups and downs. You know, the river turns all around. Sometimes it even goes back on itself. And there are times in human history when we have been uh, outstanding critters, I have a feeling. And there have been times when we've been uglier than we are now, even though we're pretty ugly these days. But we're coming around, I have a feeling. So, anyway, it's just about that time. And I think I'm going to head out of here with another song from, from Ben Boatwright. Thanks to Ben for wonderful music for tonight. He had help from Katie Reichardt uh, on a number of the songs we played and great new music from them. Their CD is called It's Okay, Just Pretend. And uh, we'll do the same thing next week. We'll say it's okay and we'll pretend we know what the hell we're talking about. We'll come back with some fun conversation with uh, an informative conversation, by the way, as well, with the, direct, uh, the executive director of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and we'll have some great music to accompany that, okay? And come on back. I'll miss you between now and then. All right? In the meantime, check us out on the web, www.mikehagan.com. We'll have this program up in the archives real soon. And like I say, one more from Ben Boatwright on the way out of here. This one is called Wake Up and Choose. Thanks, everybody. Take care of yourselves. We'll talk to you next week. So
Ethiopia and Colombia, 89.5 FM.